Would you turn with me, please, to the last section of the first chapter of the book of Philippians. Philippians 1, 27. A few years ago, uh, Robert J. Ringer wrote a book entitled Looking Out for Number One. Uh, it was a motto that most of us had lived by up until that time, but we didn't like to see it so crassly put. It uh, blew our cover. We uh, egoists had to come out of the closet and uh, admit that we were really intent on looking out for number one. But uh, living that way has its problems. As we all know, it tends to mess up our relationships. And that's the concern that Paul has in this, in this chapter. We cannot successfully look out for number one. Now, as I uh, pointed out last week, Paul has three concerns in this first chapter. The first is his memories. He goes back to his reminiscences of the, uh, his memories of the church in Philippi, and they were good. He thanks them for their fellowship in the gospel and uh, reminds them that God is going to complete the work that he's begun in them. And then he talks about his circumstances, which are basically bad. He's under house arrest. Nevertheless, as he puts it, the, the gospel is spreading through the Praetorian Guard. Christ was being manifest in the barracks. And uh, secondly, Christ was being manifest among the brethren, the body of Christ, uh, Christians in, uh, in Philippi and in Rome and in various other places were becoming much more bold to preach the gospel because of Paul's defense of the gospel before Nero. And third, he says, Christ is manifest in my body. So on three counts, adversity, he says, brings advance. We shouldn't be concerned about opposition because opposition is an opportunity for Christ to be manifest. Now he turns from his memories and his circumstances to their conduct. Let's begin reading with verse 27. Whatever happens, he writes, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now this, uh, this verb, conduct yourself, is a pregnant expression. It would have been, would have been especially meaningful to the people in, in Philippi. The, uh, the word really means to behave as a citizen, act like a citizen. Uh, the uh, people of Philippi, as Chris mentioned the first in the introductory message in Philippians, thought of themselves as Greeks. The culture in Philippi was very Greek. That was their legacy. And though they were in the Roman Empire, uh, they, uh, they still thought of themselves as a colony of Greeks in a Roman world. And this was a term that would reflect that, that thought, conduct yourself as a Greek citizen in, in the world, out of that heritage, out of that culture. And he applies that metaphor to the church in Philippi because, you see, the people in Philippi were citizens of another country, or the Christians in Philippi were citizens of another, another country. In the Bible, there are two cities. There's the city of God and the city of man. And metaphorically, the city of man is Babylon and the city of, of God is Jerusalem. And those that know Christ are in the New Jerusalem. They're citizens of, of, that, of that locale. As a matter of fact, right here in, uh, in the book of Philippians, uh, in chapter 3, verse 20, he talks about those uh, in verse 19 whose mind is on earthly, uh, earthy things, earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly, eagerly, await, a citizen, uh, uh, <laughs> we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, he, he's calling them to, uh, to recognize that they, they have a different background, they have a different culture, they have a different 
citizenship. They belong to God, and they ought to behave that way. Their conduct, their activity ought to be a reflection of the, uh, of the place from which they come. You can always tell where people come from by the way they behave. A number of years ago, I was traveling in, uh, uh, in Europe with a friend of mine, John Landreth. I've, I've mentioned him a number of times. He's a, uh, he's a, he was a handy friend. He, he illustrates a lot of principles. And uh, uh, John is very much a Californian. He grew up in Detroit, Michigan. But he's California to the core. And uh, we, we stopped off in London and had a 24-hour layover, and I wanted to go to the London Museum, and so we, we set out to find it one morning. Uh, this, it was January, wintertime, and it was a very cold, foggy day. Those of you in London know what, what that, who have been to London know what that's like. And you know how people dress in London. They dress very, very conservatively, in particular in the wintertime. Blue blazers and gray trousers or gray suits or black suits and dark overcoats and dark hats, and they carry... Uh, uh, umbrellas that are dark. Well, John showed up that particular morning in a pair of electric canary yellow pants. And uh, he had on a blue golf hat and a jacket. And we set out to walk the streets of London to find the, uh, the London Museum. It, it, it probably is one mark of the depth of our friendship that I didn't say anything. Uh, <laughs> And uh, we were walking down the street uh, trying to follow a map, and the only way we could orient ourselves was by the River Thames. And we knew that, we're the, you know, that the London was nearby, or the, uh, uh, the museum was nearby, so we were following the river. We thought it was the Thames. We weren't sure. And we went across the bridge, and as we're going across the bridge, a very proper Britisher met us coming the other way. And he, he, he looked like a member of parliament. He had a double-breasted blue suit on, a white shirt, and an old, old college tie, and carrying his umbrella, walking along briskly. And, and uh, uh, John uh, asked directions. Now, you, you would have to know John to appreciate this. Uh, Terry knows him. A lot of other people know him. He always talks about two decibels higher than he ought to talk. And uh, he says to this, uh, this uh, Britisher, Hey, buddy, he says. Where is the River Thames? <clears throat> well, uh, the, the expression on this man's face, you, you, you could have written a book about it. He, he literally rolled his eyes up, up around and, and tilted his head back and sighed. And he said, Sir, the River Thames is right there. And walked on by. Now, he knew exactly where John was coming from. Uh, he could have told us that John is from California and that he's, a, he's an American and there are a number of other things that he could have said about it. He knew exactly where he's coming from. It was so obvious you couldn't miss it. Now that's what Paul is saying. There ought to be something about us that is so characteristic of our citizenship in heaven that everybody spots us from a mile off. They, they know exactly where we're coming from. Now, uh, he's going to tell us what it is in a few minutes. But he, in Paul's typical fashion, he, he sort of he builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up, builds the tension. He's going to tell us later what that character, uh, characteristic is. Now, let's, let's go back and read 27 again. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man or with one soul, is the way the text puts it, for the faith of the gospel, 
without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be to say, uh, you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, not only is faith a given, but also to suffer for him. In other words, opposition is the name of the game. That's a given as well. It's not only given to us to have faith, it's given to us to suffer for the sake of Christ. And Paul says, that's what I'm going through since you were going through the same struggle you saw I had. And now here that I, that I still have. Now, uh, we could read this paragraph and think, aha, what Paul is talking about is unity. And that's the characteristic that ought to uh, identify us as members of Christ's body. But that's really not what Paul is talking about. As we'll see, unity is the result of this secret principle. Unity is a consequence of an attitude of knowing something. Now, let, let me explain again what the problem was in Philippi. At, at least this is the way I see the book. Something triggered all of these books. Paul didn't just sit down and decide to write a letter. There was a reason for his, for the, for his correspondence. And on this particular occasion, the problem was two women in the church in Philippi that could not get along. Uh, turn to chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in, in the book of life. Now, a lot of bad things have been said about this women, uh, these women. They've even been uh, renamed as uh, odious and soon touchy and the impression is given that these were a couple of silly, trite, little, little old biddies that couldn't get along, and they were, they were petty and, and uh, just picking on one another. But I don't think that's what Paul has in mind at all. And in case you're thinking, that's just like a woman, let, let me also assure you, that's not what Paul is thinking. Uh, women do not have a corner on inability to get along with one another. Men do that just as well as women do. As a matter of fact, Paul had a real problem getting along with Barnabas. There's a, there's a section of the book of Acts that describes their disagreement, which was intense. It was profound. It, it split up their relationship. So Paul's not, not, not categorizing women as difficult to get along with, nor is he saying that this disagreement is trite and trivial. It may have been a very serious disagreement about how they're going to go about a, a particular phase of ministry. And they're described here as very significant women. Their names are mentioned in conjunction with Clement, who was the, one of the first bishops of the city of Rome, who became a, a leader in, in the church. So these women apparently were leaders. And I, I don't know, maybe they had some difference of doctrine. Maybe one of them believed in immersion and the other believed in sprinkling, or one of them was had a superlapsarian view of the decrees or another, an infralapsarian. I don't know what the problem was, but they couldn't get along. And the reason they couldn't get along is because they couldn't agree upon the principle that Paul is going to enunciate in, in a moment. And the whole book, I think, was written for these women. Now, remember, they didn't have printing presses and copy machines in those days. And uh, so the, these letters were read aloud in the church. And you can imagine what an impact this had when uh, one of the elders of the city in, in, of the church in Philippi read this letter. And you have this profound theology that leads up to this point, the whole point of which is, now, you know, you, you women have got to get along because it's a serious problem. See? And their names are mentioned in public. 
and have been for 1,900 years. You're going to look them up in heaven. Oh, yeah, you're the, you're the woman that couldn't get along with. Yeah. Because this is serious business, see. And they could not agree on the principle that Paul wants uh, to delineate here in this, in this section. Now, he says, if you understand the principle and, and you stick by it, then you'll stand firm in one spirit. You'll contend as one soul for the faith of the gospel. You won't be intimidated by those who oppose you. Opposition is the name of the game. You're going to catch a lot of flack. But uh, not only will the church be mobilized, but your opposition will be immobilized if, if, you, if you act on this principle. I, I think Paul had in mind the, the idea of the Greek phalanx. Since this was a Greek city and they were, they were thinking, you know, Greek culture, Alexander the Great. The city was named for Philip of Macedonia, Alexander's father. And uh, uh, they, one, of the, one of the strategies of Alexander's, uh, that Alexander used in warfare was the phalanx. He, he lined his men up ten across, ten deep, and they, the ones in front and the side and the back carried their, their shields up in front. The ones in the middle carried theirs over the top of their heads. And uh, the, the second rank had their spears on the shoulders of the men in the first rank, so the spears were projecting out from the solid block of of, of soldiers. It was a formidable strategy, and it just scared the daylights out of Alexander's uh, opponents. And I, I think that's what Paul had in mind. Striving together for the faith of the gospel, walking in step, locked arm in arm with one another, which he says is intimidating to your opponents because they realize that God's with you and against them. Because if Christians act this way according to this secret, if they get this principle down, he says, it's obvious that God is at work because no one can act this way out of their own humanity. You can't act this way. You can't behave this way. It takes God to produce this kind of activity in you. And when, you, when, when, when the world sees Christians acting this way, they start taking seriously what we're saying. Because it can't be explained solely on the basis of our personality or our human ability. Now, what is the principle? What, what is he getting at? Well, he's getting there. Just wait. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, before he talks about the principle, he gives us some incentives to it. And we're going to come back and talk about these incentives later. If you have any encouragement in Christ, do you get any encouragement from the Lord? I mean, is he, is he for you or is he against you? Paul says he's for you. Oh, he's out there encouraging you on. If there is any incentive from his love, are you motivated and mobilized by God's love for you? He's saying, by the way, the if here does not convey condition. There are a number of ways to imply uh, uh, conditions in, in Greek, but this is not, uh, this, there's no contingency here. We could translate sense, sense. There is encouragement in Christ, and since there are incentives from his, his love for us, since there is a sharing in his spirit, his spirit indwells us, and we partake of his life, he's saying. And since there is tenderness and compassion from Christ, that's just the way he is, then make my joy, make my day, Paul says, make it complete by being like-minded. That's the word for attitude. Have this attitude, he's saying. Have the same attitude. Share the same attitude. Share the same love. Being one in spirit and in 
purpose. My translation says, but it's the word attitude again. You see? Uh, the, for some reason, the translators have translated this word a number of different ways, but it, it's the word attitude or mindset all the way through here. Make my joy complete by having the same mindset, having the same love, being one in spirit and mindset. Now, what is that attitude that makes for unity, that, that rebuilds broken and shattered relationships, that, that makes us impregnable and invulnerable? that mobilizes us and, and intimidates our opposition. What is it? Well, it's spelled out in verse 3. Doing nothing. Doing nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Not out of personal aims. Not out of faulty self-assessment. Doing nothing. Nothing, he says. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But in humility. Considering others better than yourselves. In other words, looking out for number two, not looking out for number one. Now we say, whoa, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. How, how can I do that? I mean, it's obvious that I'm better than some people. And, you know, that's a fair assessment. Some people are smarter than others. Some people are taller than others. Some people are better skiers, better, better athletes. They're better with their hands. You know, they, they can make beautiful things. Other people are clumsy. They can't. Uh, some people have, have the benefit of an education. Some do not. So you have, you know, how, how, you know, how do we think about ourselves? Obviously, we're, we're ahead of some people in some areas. We can make more money. We, we can move higher in our company. How are we to think? Well, Paul answers that question. He says, in, in humility, considering others better than themselves, i.e., that is, not looking out for your own interests, but indeed to the interests of others. In other words, don't think in terms of your own needs and looking out for yourself, but look out for other people. In that sense, he says, think of others as better than yourself. More needy. They, they need you more. They need your help. They need your encouragement. They need your support. They need your wisdom. They need your gifts. They need your understanding of Scripture. They need your comfort. They need your care. They need your friendship. That's what he's saying. So instead of going through life thinking about yourself and how people are going to meet your needs, go through life thinking about others. And that's something you cannot do apart from the grace of God. Because we came into this world self-centered egoists. We love ourselves. We will look out for number one. It is as natural as falling off a log. You don't even have to try. You know, from the time you're a little kid, somebody was telling you, do not take Johnny's blocks. Do not hit Johnny over the head with his blocks. That hurts him. Stop looking out for yourself. Think about Johnny. Then you wait till mom's out of the room and you bust him with a block. You know, that, it's just, it just comes natural. We're born that way. But you see, grace turns all that around and, it, and it, you start caring about people. You start thinking about their needs. You start listening to them. Shows up in our conversation. Have you ever had one of those conversations with someone and you walk away and you realize that they know everything about you? They know all your problems, all your ills, all your struggles, all your hurts, all your pain. You don't know anything about them because you didn't ask. See? Spent your whole time, the whole time filibustering about your needs instead of thinking about them. That's a dead giveaway. See? We don't care about them. 
One mark of, of someone who is governed by this principle is that they can ask, how are you, and really mean it. It's not just an opening uh, uh, gambit. I mean, I mean, you know, it's, it, it's not just a way to start a conversation. I mean, you really mean it. You want to know how they are. You care about them. One mark of this principle, I think, is that uh, we do not ask people what we can do for them. We do it. You know, very often, we'll say, we know someone is suffering in some way, and we will say to them, what can I do for you? That's a cop-out, frankly. That's expressing concern without doing anything. That's, that's the sort of thing that James talks about when he says your brother comes to your door and they're hungry and thirsty and you say go and be warmed and filled. You don't do, don't do anything, he says, to meet their need. Don't ask. You know, if your brother's laid up and, and his yard is, uh, you know, the grass is a foot high in his yard, don't ask him if you can do anything for him. Go mow his lawn. If you know that, a, that, that, that someone's under a lot of pressure and a lot of things are happening in their family, don't ask them if you can do anything. Just take a meal. Just call them up. Say, I'm bringing a meal over tonight. Don't care if you like it or not. It's coming. Be ready. Be there at 5. Say. If you know someone has a financial need, don't ask them if they're in need. Send them $20 or whatever you can spare. See? Because you, hardly anybody is going to say... Yeah, you know, I'd like for you to fix me a meal tonight, or I'd like for you to mow my lawn. And if we really care about one another, we'll just do it. That's all. Just do it. See, that's, that's, that's the thing that sets us apart from the rest of the world. We don't talk about love. Love talk is cheap. We just do it. We really care about each other. Shows up in the church. You know, people come to the church and they get real concerned because nobody pays any attention to them. And that's a problem because we really ought to be reaching out to strangers who come. and you know, we, we just we want to love them when they walk in. We want to care about them. But uh, really, the, the best way to fit in is just start looking for a place you can meet needs. Don't worry about your own needs being met. Just start meeting needs. Look for someone who's lonelier than you are and, and befriend them. Because, again, friendship is not something that people do to you. It's something you do for somebody else. If a man wants to be friends, the King James said, a version of this proverb puts it, he must show himself friendly. You take the initiative. See. It's true of ministry. You just go to serve. You know, it's so easy for us to get our egos mixed up in ministry, teaching a Sunday school class or a growth group, and if people don't appreciate us, we want to quit. They didn't appreciate the Lord. Didn't come to be ministered unto. Didn't come to have his ego sat. He came to serve. So what if they don't care? Doesn't make any difference. Just keep on serving. Okay? Let God meet your needs. Uh, and then and serve. I, I uh, uh, Six months or so ago, I had a, an opportunity to speak to a group of youth pastors from the uh, West Coast down in San Francisco. And I used the story that Jesus told about uh, uh, the robber, that the, the thief that steals into the sheep pen. And he, he comes into the sheep pen at night and he steals the sheep. And the hireling flees when the robbers come or when the, when the wolves come. And the reason I use that story is because youth workers uh, quit about every 18 months. The, the average tenure of a youth pastor in a church these days is 18 months because they get so much criticism. They just bail out. And I pointed out to them that one of the marks of a true shepherd is that he stays with the sheep. He doesn't quit. 
just because people are hurting him. You can expect wolves to come in, but you can't, can't, can't abandon the sheep. You stay there until they carry out feet first. See, that, that, that's the mark of a good shepherd. Because you're not there to be served, you're there to serve. See, that's the mark of, of someone who understands what Christ came to do. As he put it, I did not come to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give my life a ransom for many. And that's the pattern it ought to, ought to govern us. We, we need to stop looking out for number one and look out for number two. That's the mark. Now, that, that idea is so staggering, he has to document it. And what he does is uh, illustrate uh, through Christ. Verse 5, your attitude, uh, mindset. Same word that's translated like-minded or purpose back in verse uh, 2. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. And then there follows one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament on on Christ. The uh, uh, theologians have wrestled over this passage for 1,900 years, and no one thoroughly understands it. We can't understand the details but we can understand the point that Paul is making. And, and that's the point, to get the point, not necessarily to understand the, the theology of the thing. What's the, what's the big idea? Now, now listen, this is a poem, I think, or a hymn, or a creedal statement of some, some sort that was uh, uh, memorized and used as a part of the litur- liturgy of the early church. Who, that is Christ Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be to be grasped, to be forcibly retained, to be held on to. Now, theologians argue over the meaning of you know, being in nature of God. What, what, what does that mean? It's a Greek word that means form, outward form. And no one quite understands what Paul is trying to say, except that he's contrasting the fact that he was by, by nature God and he became by nature a servant in, in verse uh, 7. But whatever he means by that, it's clear that Paul is saying that Jesus was God. If you had been in heaven when our Lord was there in his pre-incarnate state and you had been able to see him, you would have seen God. That's what he's saying. You would have seen the outward expression of the inward nature of God. But he didn't consider that equality with God something to be held on to. But he, literally, he emptied himself. He poured himself out. It's, it's the word it's used of pouring the, out the contents of a vessel. He poured out that use of his prerogatives as God, that independent uh, expression of the character of God. And uh, he, he made himself nothing, is the way my translation puts it, taking the very nature of a servant. He took upon himself the form of a servant. He who was by nature God, dependent upon no one, became a servant. He came to serve, you see. He came to think about other people's needs. And uh, then being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There are two ideas in this, in this hymn. He emptied himself of the independent use of his attributes as God, and he humbled himself... And became obedient to death, even death on a cross. The point he's making is this. How far do you go in serving? He says, Jesus was willing to die for us. Uh, 
as, as the hymn writer puts it, just mystery all, the immortal dies. How can that be that God died? The point seems to be that one characteristic of our humanity is that we die, and Jesus became so much a man that he died. And it wasn't mere death that he faced. It was, it was ignominious death, even the death of a cross. You know, we've glorified this thing. You know, we, we make it out of beautiful pieces of oak, but uh, the, the cross was a symbol of, of the death of a criminal. It would be like glorifying an electric chair today. As a matter of fact, the symbol of the cross didn't come into being until long after the New Testament was written. The symbol of a fish was the first symbol of Christianity because the cross was such an offensive thing, the Christians were even reluctant to take that as a symbol. They didn't wear crosses around their neck. They didn't put crosses up in their, in their houses until much, much later. I've mentioned before the, the, the uh, graffiti that's been found on the wall of the catacombs in Rome, actually part of the, of the barracks where, the, uh, uh, where, these, where the Praetorian Guard were housed. And they found a cross with a figure of a man with an ass, ass's head, donkey's head. And underneath it says, Anaximenus worships his God. You know, it was uh, an attempt to, to try to put this young man down who had expressed faith in Christ. There was nothing glorious or glamorous about the cross. The point is that Jesus is willing to go that far. How far do you go in serving? A willingness to die for someone else and a willingness to, to look this bad. A willingness to be so overlooked that your, your dignity is not, is not protected at all. I'm going to set all that aside. See. Now, he, we tend to hang up on this hymn because it's, it's, it's so profound, so difficult to understand. But seen in the light of the context, you understand clearly what he's saying. He's saying the way we ought to live our life is just to give it away, to, to care about others. And that idea is so shocking, so staggering, it's so foreign to our nature that he has to document it through this illustration of, of Christ who was willing, who was God, and he gave it all away. He never ceased to be God, but he gave away all of his attributes and characteristics as God and in order to serve us to the point of death and even the shameful, undignified death of, of a cross. Uh, every once in a while you run across a passage, I do anyway, that I just dread preaching on because I know how far short I fall. I know what a selfish person I am. And I read a passage like this, and I, oh, no, i got to preach this thing next Sunday. And my wife and my kids and all my friends will tell you how, how untrue this is of me. You know, and I, my goodness, how can I stand up with any authority and preach on this passage? I think Paul recognized that. He knew it. He knew how difficult it was for him to give his life away. And that's why I think he brings together these incentives. And these are what I want to leave with you. If you have any encouragement from Christ, if there is any incentive from his love, if there is any sharing in common with his spirit, if there's any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose, doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do you see what he's saying? Our encouragement comes from Christ. He understands. He understands our limitations, our frailty, our selfishness, our egoism. He understands all those things. And he's down there up there encouraging us on. And he's within 
empowering us to do the job. It's not something we have to do out of self-effort. It's not something you know, we don't have to set our jaw and clench our fists and decide we're going to go out and give ourselves away because we'll last about 30 minutes. But, but what you need to realize is that, that our Lord is over there cheering us on, encouraging us, making himself available to us, being understanding of our failures. I, I, I talked to the men last week in our Wednesday morning class about Noah. Instead of Noah, that he was a righteous man, he was, he was a cut above his generation. And the impression is given that, uh, that he, he was just a good man. He, he just really worked hard at being good, and that's what set him apart. But the text actually says he was a righteous man. He had integrity. He was whole. He was total. He was complete. And then the explanation comes. He walked with God. That's what made him the man that he was. That's what set him apart from his contemporaries. Nobody else walked with God. Noah did. And, and you know, he didn't get up every morning, and God didn't hand him a list of things to do. All right, uh, today we're going to work on the, uh, uh, the uh, storage chamber for the hay for the horses. And I want to build this way, so wide, so tall. You know, nails driven here, planks here. And Noah got up, and he thought, oh, no. My neighbors already think I'm some kind of an idiot. You know, the property values in our, in our uh, block have gone way down because of that stupid ark in the front yard. Oh, no, i got to get out there and do it. No, 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 no. He got up in the morning and he said, Lord, I really don't want to build that ark. I, you know, that thing is an embarrassment to me. Nobody understands me. But I'm going to walk with you through the day. Where, where do you want me to put this plank? Where do I drive this nail? You know, I, I, where do I put the pitch in this thing? And he just kept walking with God. He kept drawing on that strength. He kept, kept listening to God's instruction. He kept understanding. You know, he understood that if he didn't make it up one morning, if he was so depressed, he couldn't go outside and drive a nail. It's all right. God still loved him. God cared about him. God was up there saying, boy, Go get him. And that changes our whole attitude toward, toward the way we approach these tough jobs and tasks that are given to us. God's saying, attaboy, go get him. I'm with you. I, uh, our middle son, Brian, played on a Little League uh, team in California, and, and his team went to the uh, regional championships. And uh, we, we, a whole family went over to Fremont for the playoff. And, uh, in fact, about half the staff of the church went. We were, we were all pulling for him like crazy and it's one of those dream situations, you know, bottom of the ninth. I mean, it's actually happening. You can ask Carolyn, and I'm not exaggerating. Bottom of the ninth, bases loaded, score tied, or I guess it's bottom of the seventh. They only play seven in- innings in, uh, in, in Little League. But anyway, it's the last, last inning. Bottom of the seventh, bases loaded, score tied. And guess who came up? Brian. And Brian always, uh, whenever he would come up, he'd, he'd check up in the stands. And I still remember him walking. I was a 12-year-old kid. This was his last year to play Little League. He walked up to the, to the plate, and he looked up to where we were sitting. And I was sitting up there yelling, And our boy, go get him! And, when, you know, suppose he looked up there, and he thought, Oh, no, if I blow, if I whiff, my dad will hate me all week. You're talking pressure. I mean, people were screaming. There were several thousand people there. They were yelling and screaming, and his coach was screaming at him. And he looks up in the stands, 
And his dad is saying, Atta boy, go get him! And he did. He got a single. And, uh, but it wouldn't have mattered if he'd have whiffed. It wouldn't have mattered. He would have been loved. When he came back, he would have been loved. That's what God's saying to us. Here's this tough, tough principle. And uh, I, I, I look at this thing and I say, oh, no way. I, I, I can't do this. God said, yes, you can. Yes, you can. I'm for you. I'm in you. I'm available. Go out there and get them. And, and what an incentive that is to, to do what he's called us to do. And if we fail, it's all right. It's all right. We can pick up from here and go on. Let me read something that I uh, came across a few months ago that really touched me. It's by uh, an ex-Catholic priest. His name is Brennan Manning, and I had an opportunity to hear him speak a few uh, few months ago. And then I uh, read an interview with him recently, and I want to read it to you, and with this we'll, we'll conclude. And I just read it as it is. You know, some of you may take issue with some of the things he says, but this is, this is the honest expression of a man's heart. I don't agree with him in all of his theology, but, but here's a man who understands some basic truth. The only lasting freedom comes from a profound awareness that God loves me as I am and not as I should be. That he loves me beyond worthiness and unworthiness, beyond fidelity and infidelity. That he loves me in the morning sun and the evening rain without caution, regret, boundary, limit, or breaking point. That no matter what I do, he can't stop loving me. When I am really in conscious communion with the reality of the wild, passionate, relentless, stubborn, pursuing, tender love of God in Christ Jesus for me, then it's not that I have to, or I've got to, or I must, or I should, or I ought. Suddenly, I want to change because I know how deeply I'm loved. I have a good little friend, a 55-year-old nun named Mary Michael O'Shaughnessy, who has a doctorate in theology, who has a banner hanging on her wall that says, Today, I will not should on myself. One of the wonderful results of my consciousness of God's staggering love for me as I am is the freedom not to be who I should be or who others, or who others want me to be. I can be who I really am. And who I am is a bundle of paradoxes and contradictions. I believe and I doubt. I trust and I get discouraged. I love and I hate. I feel bad about feeling good. I feel guilty if I don't feel guilty. Aristotle said we're rational animals. I say I'm an angel with an incredible capacity for beer. It is the real me that God loves. I don't have to be anyone else. For 20 years, I tried to be Brother Teresa. I tried to be Francis of Assisi. I had to be a carbon copy of some great saint rather than the original God intended me to be. My 70-year-old spiritual director, Larry Hine, gave me a word of the Lord that he heard from a dear old black evangelical preacher in Georgia. Be who you is. Because if you ain't who you is, then you is who you ain't. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? The biggest mistake we can make is to say to God, Lord, if I change, you'll love me, won't you? The Lord's reply is always, wait a minute, you got it all wrong. You don't have to change, so I'll love you. I love you, so you'll change. I simply expose myself to the love that is everything. 
and have an immense, unshakable, reckless, raging confidence that God loves me so much, he'll change me and fashion me into the child that he always wanted me to be. Isn't that great? That's God's word for us today. Let's stand together, shall we? Now, I want to do something a little different this morning. I want to give you a few moments to think, so I'm going to pray for us. And then I would ask you to, to do your own business with the Lord for a few moments until you hear the postlude. Worship Him in your own heart. Thank you for His love, for His acceptance, for that incredible acceptance and forgiveness that you have from Him and the immense power that's available to you to get up and get going again. Just think about those things, will you? Let's pray. Lord, we look at these, uh, these staggering requirements well beyond our capacity. And our hearts both uh, are warmed by it and drawn toward it, and at the same time we're repelled from it because we, we just feel that we'll fail again. We want to do better, but uh, we don't do well. And we know that. We thank you for your acceptance and for your love, that unconditional love that keeps on going regardless of what we do, a love that, that was displayed in the cross in your willingness to, to give of yourself to us. And so we ask for uh, an awareness of that love this morning. Help us to bask in it to revel in it, to enjoy it to the hilt, and thank you for it. And we would ask that, that we would have your strength now to try again today, in your strength, to be what, what we long to be. These things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.